let me read this to you quickly. John chapter 20, there's just a few revelations I wanna share with you. And I believe this is a word for you right now. Early on this first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene. Now, let me talk about Mary. So the name was connected to a location. So you guys all know her as Mary Magdalene, but actually it's Magdala is a location in Israel. And so it's Mary from that location, Mary Magdala, Mary Magdalene. See how it's connected? What was Magdala known for? Prostitution. So when you connect the name to the location, it reveals the identity. Matter of fact, if I ask you where you live, where you live reveals something about your identity. Matter of fact, there's some places where if somebody tells you they're from and you hear the name of it, you're like, ooh, I don't know if we could be friends. <laughs> and, you're, and you know what's weird? All across America, you're all thinking of the names of cities and towns and neighborhoods. And, you thought, and, you, and now you feel a little guilty even thinking about it. You're like, I'm one of those. There's a little bit of prejudice in me or whatever it is. But we all have this because there's areas that we say. I just got back from San Francisco. They have me come and minister in the Tenderloin. The Tenderloin is a part of San Francisco that you don't wanna go alone at night. It's rough. So when you say I'm from the Tenderloin, it's like saying I'm Mary Magdalene was like a way of saying I'm Mary from Magdalene. People have been like, what? And you trust her, Jesus? And she's one of yours, Jesus? So you, you gotta bring some of the scandal back to the Bible, amen? So it says, she arose early the first day of the week while it was still dark and went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. Now there's a lot of debate right now amongst Christians and there's this faux Judaism that's, that's disrupting a lot of our churches and people are demanding that we call him Yeshua and not Jesus and that Jesus is invalid. And people are demanding that we celebrate in the Sabbath and not celebrate on a Sunday. So can I just uh, correct some of this foolishness? And you have it right here in the Bible. The early church tradition was to meet on Sundays because they were meeting in celebration of the resurrection of Christ. And you won't find the word Sunday in your Bible because Sunday wasn't a popularized term. But you read that they go the first day of the week, which for a Jew would have been Sunday. And so they met in the book of Acts on a Sunday. So do we have to meet on a Sunday? No. But do we have to meet on the Sabbath? No. Because, and this will really mess you up, and I don't have time to preach it, you know what real Sabbath is? Jesus. Okay, but I don't have time for that. And you know what the difference between Yeshua and Jesus is? The difference between Richard and Ricardo. And so for everybody's like, oh, you know, I, I, I don't do this often, but I got into a Facebook fight the other day, and I know Heather saw it, and I was going to war with this woman in the chat, and I said, girl, you done made me mad today. And she said, you have to use Yeshua. And I said, well, the problem with that is there's a lot of people who've called themselves Yeshua, and there's a lot of people who call themselves Jesus. So the power's not in the pronunciation of the name, it's in the relationship to the name. Come on, somebody. And so here, and then she said, yeah, you're right. You have to say Yeshua. And I was like, she's not a good student. And I said, well, I said, yeah, but if you just repeat the name, whether it's Jesus or Yeshua, you'll find out that if you don't have a relationship to the true one behind that name, that demons are not going to respond properly anyways. 
And she said, oh, well, how do you know? And I said, well, t go ask the sons of Skeva what happens when you start screaming a name without a relationship to the name. You get beat up by the demons who are like, who is you? So the reason why I say that is this faux Judaism that's trying to infiltrate the church is actually this, the demon of religion in disguise. It's religion. So we meet on Sunday because the early church met on Sunday, and we're celebrating Christ's resurrection every Sunday, but we can meet on Monday. We can meet on Friday. We can meet on Wednesday. Are we good? And you can call him Jesus, or you can call him Yeshua, or you can call him Jesus, but make sure you have a relationship to the one that you call upon. Okay, so I had to get that out of the way because this weird stuff's infiltrating. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one who Jesus loved, and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Now, the other disciple mentioned is John. I want to point out the fact that John doesn't name himself in his own narration of the story of Jesus. What a level of humility to know that you're writing the story of your Savior and don't even put your own name in the narrative. I don't know which millennial that I need to say this to right now, but you need to start referring to yourself as the other disciple and stop trying to make a name for yourself and start trying to make Jesus' name known. Because there's something about the way John deletes himself out of this narrative that is so refreshing in a world where everybody's trying to make a name for himself. He was so secure in the name of Jesus, he didn't even include his own name. Isn't that good? But he was a little sassy still because he said, you know, the one Jesus loved. I ain't going to name myself, but you know, the one he loved. So he's still, he's humble, but he's human. But we need a little bit more about that. Don't nobody care about your name. It's about the name of Jesus. Everywhere I go, I tell people, if you came to see Mike Signorelli, you came for the wrong reason. But if Christ be lifted up, he will draw all men unto him. I'm trying to make a name for myself. <laughs> so, so Peter and the other disciple, they started for the tomb. Both were running. But this is funny. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. So he's a little competitive. He bent over and he looked in at the strips of, the, of linen that were there but did not go in. Then verse 6 says, Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there. Verse seven, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head, the cloth was still lying in its place separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first, this is John again, it's, he's been a little sassy, you know, you know, the one who got there first, the one that's faster at running than Peter. It's funny to read their humanity. They have personality. Because a lot of times we elevate men and women up to, uh, of God up to a place where they're not touchable. But you can read it in the, in the, in the text. Finally, the other disciple who, you know, who reached the, team, the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. So because I read that to you in English, you heard me say the word saw and looked multiple times, and I used the same word because your text used the word the same word. But in Greek, Greek is a much more exacting language. And English is sort of barbaric still, so I could say I love my wife, and I love pizza, and I love Evan. But if I love them all the same, that's weird. 
I don't love Evan like I love my wife. Sorry, Evan. Come on, that's funny. <laughs> Dad jokes. I don't love my wife like I love pizza. But we only have one word. In the Greek, we're using the word saw, the word looked. But they, we only have one in, in the English language. The deeper revelation, and I wanna do this quickly, is in verse four, it says, both were running, but then the other disciple outran Peter and reached, and reached the tomb. It says, he bent over and looked. So if you underline in your Bible the word looked, in the Greek, it means the same word as saw, to notice. So John runs up, and he comes to the lip of the tomb, so this is the tomb, and he stops, and he, and he kind of looks in there, and he just notices that the strips of linen that were wrapped around Jesus' body are now folded and laying on the ground. So he just notices it. It's like, I notice it. Then Simon Peter comes along, so now he's huffing and puffing because he can't run as fast. <sighs> and then he goes, step aside. <laughs> I'm going all the way in. So see how they're kind of competing with each other a little bit? You get these little clues from the language. So he's like, let, let me get in there. I'll go in the tomb, you wuss. You know, because Peter's always trying to cut somebody. And, you know, he's like, oh, I can't, you know, probably Peter. This is the way I, Peter's probably smoking a cigarette. <laughs> Come on, move aside. Let me, <laughs> he just has that, you know, on him. The more, I've been studying the text for years. I'm like, this dude was a blue collar fisherman. He smoked Marlboro. <laughs> You know, that, he was that kind of guy. He was like one of those, what, you know? Okay, so anyways, he gets in the tomb, and then it, this is the Greek word that it uses for him. The Greek word says, it's, it's the root for theater. So it says that he saw the strips of linen lying there, and it means to observe carefully what you see, to study it intently. So now he's standing there, and he's looking at these linen strips that are folded and, and just on the ground. And he's really like studying. He's really trying to figure out like, what is this? Like, what am I looking at? And he's, he's, it's more than noticing it. It's a little bit deeper. He's studying it. So that, that's Peter. But then you get the last and final realm of seeing. And this is when you have Verse seven, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head, the cloth was still lying in its place separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first, he went inside and then it says he saw and he believed. So now John, who's on the outside, sees Peter on the inside of the tomb, which by the way, if you've ever been to Israel and you go to the garden tomb and you go into, and I, I think I know which one is the legitimate one, uh, it's really crazy to think about the fact that, that John and Peter were in that tomb, looking in the same direction that you're looking. It's a crazy experience because the Bible is not a fairy tale and we don't have a sky daddy. And this is not wishful thinking. This is the truth I'm telling you right now. Like this is historically accurate. So anyways, he sees Peter in there and then all of a sudden he steps in and he's like, I wanna see it for myself, I wanna come closer, I wanna take another look. And as he's taking another look, it, it, it goes, whoa, I see and I believe. Now look, this is another Greek word. So three different Greek words for the same English word. So that means there's a wheel of revelation, we have to go deeper. It means to see with understanding and to comprehend. 
So when John walked into the tomb, it said it was more than just a deep observation and a study of the linen. It was actually, he now comprehended what he was seeing. Now, the reason why nobody's jumping up and shouting right now is because you don't have this comprehension yet. Let me help you. You have to understand how Jews actually did burial procedures. Now, we have some clues in scripture, and we know this to be true. Remember in the other gospel, it says they brought over 100 pounds of spices to prepare the body of Jesus. Do you guys remember hearing this? So when Jesus died, and Jesus died a literal death, he gave up the ghost. He said, it is finished. They put a spear in his side, and water and blood came out, and he finally died. Now, all of a sudden, you have this moment where they need to prepare the body. And this is the way that they would have done it. They took strips of linen and they would take a, a mixture of spices and aloe and they would create like a gooey substance. And they, they would take the strips and run them through this gooey substance and they would individually wrap each limb the arms and the legs, and then they would do the trunk and the torso all the way up, and then a separate, like a handkerchief a type of linen would be placed over the head. Now that aloe with the spices were for the preservation of the body, but it would form almost like a cast as it hardened and went from gooey and malleable to stiff. Does this make sense? So imagine now, okay, now you understand the, what happened to Jesus' body when he died. All of a sudden, they run to the, temp, to the tomb, and then Peter goes in and looks, and he's like trying to figure it out, and then all of a sudden, John goes in and looks, but here's where the plot twist. They're looking at these strips. They're not torn. They're not ripped, and they're not missing. They're just folded like a cocoon on the floor. If some, if, oh, there's a swoon theory. The swoon theory was that Jesus was only rendered unconscious or at worst in a coma as a result of the trauma to his body, and they thought he was dead, but he wasn't really dead. But then when they put his body in the tomb, the humidity and the dampness of the tomb and those conditions of coldness caused him to come out of the coma, and then, and then he was resurrected. The problem with that is, how do you get the, the, the stone rolled away? Because now you have like Roman soldiers that would have lost their life for causing that scandalous Jewish man from the Galilee's body to go missing. So I don't think that soldiers were willing to gamble their life. So how does the tomb get, the, the stone get rolled away? That's a big question. We know it was angels. Then the other thing is, if Jesus resuscitated and didn't resurrect, then the, you would have this situation where he is trying to struggle to tear himself loose of those bandages, and you would have seen the remnant of those bandages that he tore himself loose from. So we know Jesus wasn't, re, he re, wasn't resuscitated. He was resurrected. And then if his body was stolen, three days of being completely wrapped up like that, who would have taken the time to individually unwrap him and nicely place it all down? So he clearly wasn't stolen. There's only one, and this is the revelation that John got. John stood in the temple, and all of a sudden, he began to comprehend what he saw. 
It is the resurrected Jesus. And the reason why I had to preach this message today is there are three levels of seeing that's happening across all of our campuses. Some of you, you don't understand why your wife makes you go to church because you see people getting delivered from demons, but you don't comprehend that the resurrected Jesus is doing it. You see, oh, come on, somebody. There's some of you, your mom makes you go to church. Oh, mom, I have to go to church. Yeah, you're seeing the linen strips on the ground, and you're you're seeing people get healed, but you still don't recognize that the resurrected Jesus is the one touching their body. That first level of seeing is noticing. Even Farmingdale, even Long Island, they notice that the church has lines down the block, but they don't realize they're not here to see me. They're here to see the resurrected Jesus. The first level of seeing is the most artificial level of seeing. Why do you got to spend your money and give your money to the church like that? Why do you have to give it to multinational drug companies that can't cure the thing that you gave yourself through the sin that you're committing? You're seeing while I'm giving money, but you don't know that I can never pay him back for all that he's given me. Seeing is the first level. And Peter showed up, and John showed up, and they saw, but they didn't understand. But then you can investigate. This is the next level, and I'm almost done as I come to a close. Examining something is the next level, but not the last level. Can I just tell you, I got bad news for you. Wait, wait for the band. I got bad news for you. If Jesus, it distracts me so much. I'm trying, guys. If, I just, if, if Jesus Here's your problem. If Jesus was who he said he was, and he actually is the only person, not just out of the seven billion people alive on the planet Earth now, who will die and stay dead, myself included, but, the, but all of the generations that preceded us, if he is the only person that came back from the dead and validated all his claims, then you have no other option than to submit yourself to every single thing he says about how you ought to live your life. So the problem is, when you're in that observational phase like Peter, and you're like, hmm, I'm really trying to figure this whole Christian thing out. If you spend too much time in that observation phase, and you transition from this life to the next, you have taken the worst risk you could ever take. In, oh, come on, because oh, heaven forbid that you take the, you see, right now for you to be like, I don't know what I believe, that is the most foolish risk you could have. Socrates actually said the unexamined life is not worth living. I remember when I was an atheist, at least I was a real one. Some of you are fake YouTube seminary trained atheists, and you don't even read books. I, I, I read the Quran three times. That's why I can say with authority that the Quran is not true. And I, I believe that as an atheist because it's scientifically inaccurate. One part of the Quran, I remember reading the English translation, it said that, that uh, sperm originates in the lower spine of a man. Not in my body, Daniel. <laughs> That's funny, but nobody checks it. And then all of a sudden it says that the gestation period of a baby is six months. No, it's not. Full term is nine months. Clearly a dude wrote the Quran. If a woman would have wrote it, she wouldn't have put that part in there. Do you understand what I'm saying? And some of you are saying you're anti-Islam. No, I'm not. I'm pro the word of God. 
And there are people who are saying, we're all people of the book, man. We're all people of the book. No, we're not, because in your book, you reduced Jesus to a prophet, but in my book, he was elevated up. All power, all might, all authority. Islam was started by a man named Muhammad who had a private individual experience with an angel. Why in the world would you believe someone's private individual experience? Do you know that's how every cult is started? Mormonism? Jehovah's Witness, L. Ron Hubbard in Scientology. It's one man's individual experience with a supernatural element that conveniently none of us got to see it. So that angel never came back to be like, yeah, I, I, was, I did that. No, the difference in Christianity, every single thing that I've read you from this book happened publicly. Jesus revealed himself to those who believed and those who didn't believe. Bodily revealed. This is why you must understand the resurrection wasn't, I'm back from the dead, let me go to heaven. It was 40 days of him walking around and the same people who killed him being like, didn't we kill that Jewish man? That's why you cannot compare Christianity to Islam. It's incomparable. What you have is a man-made religion. What I have is a relationship with the one who made everything. It's incomparable. I read the Hindu Vedas because I was looking at life trying to say, maybe it is Eastern. Maybe it is yoga. Maybe it is having the, 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 some kind of a spiritual experience. The problem with the Hindu Vedas is any astrophysicist will read it and tell you that it's account for the creation of the universe is scientifically inaccurate. So why am I telling you this? Because when you get to the end of this passage in the 20th chapter of John, every single one of you, myself included, have the burden of this evidence. And if this is true, and you keep living your life the way you wanna live it, you've made the worst risk imaginable. You've gambled. See, my thing is if there is no God, this life is still the best way to live it. Even if, I'll give you that, okay, God, I, even as an atheist, I remember coming to a conclusion that the apex of all morality is a Christian life. You'll be the most generous person. You'll sacrifice for everyone else. You'll believe that things can happen and be eternally optimistic. Even without God, it's the best way to live. But I got even better news than that. He is true to every single one of his words. He is the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Kings and kingdoms all pass away. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. There is no one other than Jesus Christ that is supreme above all other else. And it doesn't matter. This is not 2,000 years old. This is forever. In the beginning was the word, and in the end, the word will still be standing. By all things, Christ, and all come on, preeminent, the one above all, he remains. And you get to choose today. Yeah, come on, come on, come on. I'm, I'm almost done. I'm almost done. But this is my issue. I, it, when you think about LGBTQ plus IA, when you think about how many genders there are, when you think about abortion or redefining what marriage is, if you believe that you're God, then you can define reality however you want. But if you believe that Jesus is God, he gets to determine the definition of reality. And then everything that this man from Galilee said, you have to make a choice if he can defeat death and none of you can, yeah. 
If he can defeat death and none of you can, then you should live the way he said to live. Does that make me anti-gay community? Or does that make me pro-human flourishing? Because when you go back to the garden, I dare you tonight, when you have time with your kids, I dare you, read your kids Genesis chapters one through five tonight. And what you'll see is that God made us all agents of free will, which means you can do whatever you wanna do. He won't even stop you. Cain, you wanna kill somebody? Cain and Abel, kill them. I'm not gonna stop you. Oh, you wanna, you wanna sleep with somebody of the same sex? I'm not gonna stop you. Oh, you wanna abort a baby? I'm not gonna stop you. But read Genesis one through five, and then you tell me, because people will say, well, God doesn't care what I do. It's not hurting anybody else for me to have this relationship. Read Genesis chapter one through five tonight before you go to bed, and tell me how God responded to their choice. See, the thing is, God will let you do it but he will not remove the consequence of a curse. He will not remove it. I, this is good news in the making, and the saints are slow clapping it in because they know where I'm going with this. But there is a recompense of a curse. You wanna use your sexuality like that? You're an agent of free will to do it, but there is a consequence for what you're doing. You wanna, you wanna redefine marriage? You wanna come out of covenant? You wanna be a fornicator? You wanna adulterer? You wanna become an adulterer? You have the right to do that. But there is a curse upon you for doing that. And see, what happens is Jesus shows up on the cross. The book of Galatians says that he removed the curse because he became a curse because he hung on the tree. And so the good news of Jesus Christ is that he actually became the recipient of your consequences so that you do not have to bear the eternal weight of those consequences. And so what does that mean? It means if you have aborted a baby, that actually God's mercy is so good, you can be washed by the blood of Jesus, which is is the blood of sacrifice. It means that Jesus received the penalty of death that you should have received, and then in God's infinite kindness and his loving mercy, you will be joined together with the baby you aborted in heaven and spend the rest of eternity, and that baby will say, I'm here with God, and now you're here with God because he makes all things new. It's a story of redemption. It's a story of redemption, but only to those who choose choose his forgiveness to be redeemed. And this has become an unpopular message. I did a national radio interview just two days ago, and it was Larry King's predecessor, a huge opportunity for me to talk about the movie. And I said, Lord, you got to give me Daniel wisdom as I'm communicating with people who are not saved. How do you explain revival to somebody who's not a Christian? And they said, tell me what's going on with this movie and what, why do we need revival? And I said, I'll tell you why. Revival, the prefix is re, R-E. That means again. And we are forced to believe in America that the new ideas are the best ideas. We need a new idea about gender. We need a new idea about sexuality. We need a new idea about your body. We need a new idea about marriage. Well, guess what? Revival is our way of saying the new is not the best. We need the ancient paths to open up. We need Jesus' way. We need something 2,000 years ago. It worked then. It's going to work today. The new things got us heavily medicated, full of anxiety and depression. The new things got us out of our mind. The new things got us killing each other in school shootings across America. The new thing's not working for us. We need revival. We need the old thing. We need the... Is there somebody...
We need Jesus, the man from Galilee who rose on the third day. I see the revelation of the linen strips. Nobody stole his body because you can't steal what Jesus gave freely. Hallelujah. We need the old thing because the new thing ain't working. And I said that on national radio and that guy didn't even know how to respond to it. Because the Lord is getting the message out. It's, oh, come on, yeah, come on, band, help me out. I've already, just make me stop. Come and play. Everybody else, stand to your feet if you're not on your feet already. That was pretty much my sermon. I'll be done. But I'm not bashing Hinduism. I'm not bashing Islam. I'm not bashing the alphabet community. What I'm simply saying is, what I'm simply saying, well, I'm trying to keep our YouTube channel What I'm simply saying is, Israel was surrounded by other countries. And the story in the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, was Israel constantly adopting new practices that were pagan. Molech. Molech is the spirit behind murdering children. It's old demons, new days. We know this. It's the same devil with a different different PR strategy. And so what, what I love about this is, let me show you what, how I see it as we close. What I love about this is John and Peter did not understand what God was doing. They did not understand. But this is what I love about them, and this is what I'm commending about them. They ran to the tomb, which is urgency. Say urgency. There's gotta be an urgency on the inside of you. There's gotta be an urgency on the inside. I know that I offended some of you today, but there are no Americans in heaven. So sometimes you can learn this world's ways and you can be the best American and the worst Christian. And I know this because I've devoted my entire life to these scriptures. And the way that Jesus talked is nothing like the way that most pastors talk. Nothing. It's not even comparable. And the only thing I've tried to do for the last seven or eight years leading this church is to say, if Jesus was sitting in that seat, would he approve what I'm saying? That's how I preach. If my audience was Jesus, Peter, Paul, and they were all sitting on the front row, would I be ashamed to them or would they say, you sound like we sound? And sometimes when you preach like that, um, you'll offend a whole bunch of Americans, but the believers are like, we're with you. The reason why I say that is because all of these things I mentioned are counterfeits to the real thing. So what I commend, what I commend them from doing is they went up to the tomb. They didn't stop at noticing. They didn't even stop at investigating, but they went all the way to comprehending. And what I believe is if you're one of these men that I'm talking about, that your wife makes you go to church, I dare you, don't let your wife lead your home. You lead your home. You're the priest of your home. You lead your home. And leading your home isn't paying the bills. A pimp can do that. Oh, I know, I know you're not gonna like me. Paying bills, whatever. Daddy Warbucks, a pimp can do that. Leading your home. You, now do this tonight after you read Genesis one through five. Grab your wife's hand and start praying for her. Watch the tears fall down her eyes. Now you watch what happens to your love life after that. Julie will tell you. (laughs) She's so embarrassed. (laughs) 
Nothing is more attractive to a woman than a man who loves the Lord. Nothing is more attractive to a woman than a man who loves the Lord because it signals emotional safety. You don't have to be a perfect man, but lead your home. This is not me calling you out, it's calling you up. Go past noticing, go past observing, and go right into comprehending, Lord. And you know what? You know what's more powerful than a global, international, apostolic evangelist and all the eloquence that I try to conjure up for these sermons? You know what's more powerful? Your broke down simple prayer to your wife. Your simple prayer that you stutter through the whole thing and you can barely get it out is gonna be significantly more deep than this whole sermon I just preached. One simple, you have more, you, many of you men don't realize you have more power than I do and you're not using it. And to the women that I'm talking to, this last, John chapter 20, it actually ends with Mary Magdalene, and she still doesn't know what God's doing. She still can't comprehend it. And all of a sudden, this, this man appears to her, which we know is Jesus. And she thought it was a gardener, because she still couldn't even recognize him. And all of a sudden, Jesus, the way that he got her to recognize him wasn't by saying, Mary, remember when I casted demons out of you? Mary, remember when we traveled all over doing these crazy revival events? Mary, remember this time you saw me heal this person? What Jesus simply said to her was her name, Mary. As soon as he says her name, she goes, Rabboni, teacher, in her Aramaic, teacher. And her whole attitude shifted because he called her by name. Right now, some of you are like, I don't know about this God thing. I don't know about this church thing. I came to see my friend or my family member get baptized. No, Jesus is calling you by name. He's calling you by name right now. He's calling your name out. This is about you individually calling your name out. There's three times that angels show up in the story of Jesus. Three times at his birth, when he was tempted by the devil, and then at the resurrection in this tomb. And all three times they're standing, or two times they're standing, one time they're seated. The only time they're seated is right here at this resurrection story, just like at the mercy seat. One angel at the head, one angel at the feet. And they're actually showing, it's finished. There's blood on the mercy seat. You can't earn it. Mary, you're not Mary from Magdala anymore. You're Mary from the kingdom of heaven here on earth now. You're never gonna be the same Peter. You're not going back to fishing anymore. You're not that guy anymore. You are an apostle. John, you're gonna write a book of the Bible. There's destiny inside of you. There was something about that mercy seat where the angels sat down. And see, some of you are calling upon angels to fight for you. But if you'll go into this next season and say, God, I'm gonna do what you call me to do and die to self, the angels can take a seat. I'm gonna do what I've gotta do in this next season. And so I wanna pray for you right now. There's a scripture I want to read over you. And um, this scripture was really, how many of you, if you had the opportunity as we come to a close, how many of you want to know and experience Christ on a deeper level? Just wave at me. Anybody like you really want to know him more? Like you want to know his personality. You want to know his thoughts. You want to know his ways on a deeper level. Okay, I see many hands. I see your hands. The Bible tells us exactly how to get to know him more. And you might think it's, oh, sign up for the Bible study. 
That's how you get to know him more. Yeah, yeah, we got a great Bible study in Ridgewood at the, at the Queen's office. Yeah, yeah, go to the, that's how you know him more. Oh, no, go to church more. You think I'm going to tell you, go to church more. No, no, Philippians chapter 3, verse 10 tells you exactly how to intimately know him more. And this is the way. Philippians 3.10, and this, so that I may know him experientially, becoming more thoroughly acquainted with him, understanding the remarkable wonders of his person more completely, and in the same way experience the power of his resurrection, which overflows and is active in believers. And that, okay, here it is. I'm giving you the answer. And that I may share the fellowship of his sufferings by being continually conformed inwardly into his likeness, even to his death, dying as he did. So the way that you come to know him more completely is to experience his sufferings. That means telling the people on your job tomorrow about who Jesus is. And as they reject you, you say, Jesus, I'm learning what it's like to be like you because I'm experiencing the suffering you experience. You go to your family and the next, the next holiday together, you say, okay, guys, I got to stand up. I got to do a family talk. And you tell your family the gospel and your drunk uncle starts laughing at you and the aunt that never liked you starts talking about you and you come away crying saying I'm sharing in your suffering I told my whole family the gospel that was my my opportunity God but I'm learning what it means to be more like you there's something about death that brings us death to our own will death to our own way death to our own thoughts and the more we share in his suffering the more we share in his resurrection power and so the most powerful Christians are the ones who die the most. And so you choose it the next time you wanna to go to pornography. You say, God, I don't wanna starve this lust out. I'm putting this lust to death. And then when it's completely dead, then true intimacy is resurrected. The next time there's a chance to give, you don't just tip and give a little $10 okay. You say, God, I wanna to die to this greed. I wanna to die to this selfish ambition. And when you totally kill it, the Lord will resurrect in abundance. But you come to know him more when you share in the fellowship of his suffering. Everybody's trying to get out of suffering. I'm trying to step deeper into the tomb. And what, see, why do you think they wouldn't? No, Jews don't go in tombs, they don't touch dead bodies. But it was Peter who said, I want to go inside. And then it was John who said, I'll go inside. And it's when they went deeper, that's when they saw it. So right now, my encouragement to you is it's time to step in deeper to the tomb. Step deeper into death. Matter of fact, Peter, he ended up getting crucified upside down. I mean, literally shared in martyrdom. What did he see? He saw the linen strips folded. And when his time came to die and they martyred him for the gospel, he said, turn me upside down. Don't even crucify me the same direction as my savior. Because what he knew was what goes down in the kingdom always comes back up. 
and there was gonna be resurrection power for Peter. And Peter knew I stood in Jesus' tomb and now I'm getting ready to go to my own tomb, but I know that there's resurrection on the other side. I don't know who I'm talking to right now, but this is the moment. We're gonna do this across every location. If you're feeling something inside of you, if you're a John, if you're a Peter, if you're a, if you're a Mary Magdalene and you're saying, I, I don't understand it all, but I wanna go deeper into what God has. I wanna get a revelation of his resurrection. I want to share in the fellowship of his sufferings. Would you just lift your hands so I could pray over you right now? If that's you right now, come on, the Lord sees your hands. I want us to pray this all together right now because there's a freedom in killing it. There's a freedom in letting it die. There's a freedom that comes where you say, God, I'm not gonna fight you anymore. I'm not gonna be your enemy anymore. I'm gonna let this thing die. I'm gonna share in your suffering. And I'm telling you, that is the resurrection power on the other side. Everybody repeat this after me. Say, Heavenly Father, I will share in your sufferings. I acknowledge the cross. My sins were forgiven. I'm washed by your blood, but now I become a witness to tell the testimony of what you've done. I will share in your sufferings because I will share in your resurrection. All my days I devote to you. No turning back. In Jesus' name, amen. Come on, let's just celebrate and lift it up one more time.